Head into your local Safeway for great spring savings throughout the store. This week at Safeway, get yellow peaches or nectarines for the member price of $1.88 per pound. Also this week at Safeway, value packs of Signature Farms chicken drumsticks, thighs, leg quarters, or picnic packs are buy one, get one free. Plus, get value packs of USDA Choice Boneless Beef Top Sirloin Steak for the member price of $4.99 per pound. Visit Safeway.com, download the Safeway for You app, or head in store to find more great deals at Safeway. Welcome to the Grit Daily Startup. I'm your host, Sebastian Rusk, and this is a podcast about what goes on behind the scenes at startups. The good, the bad, and the gritty. Let's dive in. Excellent, excellent. Uh, here, here we are, Grit Daily House, South by Southwest, Austin, having a great day. It's kind of like breezy, rainy, stormy. So we're all inside rather than outside, but the food's great, the atmosphere is great, the vibe's fantastic. This is Karim Nurani, uh, CSO of Link2, uh, Democratizing Access to Private Equities. And I'm very, very excited to have Michael Casey here today, Chief Content Officer, Coindesk, Co-Founder and Chairman of Streambed Media, author of several books, speakers, educator, researcher, and really um, uh, an expert in the economics of blockchain and digital innovation. Michael, I'm very excited to have you here today. It's my pleasure, Kareem. Thank you for having me. A little bit more about your background and and, and the things that you find exciting. Yeah, so I'm a journalist through most of my career, um, and but one that sort of traveled a lot, lived in different parts of the world. You know, the things that have really typically interested me have been... um, global global trends, large transformations, big shifts that happen through society. And I think, you know, I'm a, I, I mean, I'm, I'm in my fifties. And so I've sort of the child of the cold war and I've seen these changes that have happened. So I've always been captured by both technologies and sort of what I see as sort of transformative moments in history. And I think that's, if anything has largely driven my career. And, you know, I, I, I felt when I first stumbled across Bitcoin as a rather ill-informed journalist in 2013, um, that it was something totally weird and, and, and incomprehensible. But ultimately, when it was explained to me that it was one of those things that was going to be truly transformative. And I, I still believe that. I, I, it, it, it's ta- it, like anything that happens in uh, an open source, permissionless innovation environment. There is no way to predict where it's all going to go. And so, you know, uh, uh, nine years later, it's been fascinating to see where it is and, and, and where it still needs to go. Um, but, um, yeah, this is, this has been a key part of my life. Now, since then I was at the journal, Wall Street Journal at that time. Um, I was writing columns on global economics, um, but once I wrote a, my first book about cryptocurrency with my co-author, Paul Vineyard, I decided just to go kind of all in. It just seemed too exciting and too, too um, overwhelmingly um, all-consuming um, to ignore. And so went off to MIT and did uh, work there at the Digital Currency Initiative at uh, the Media Lab for a few years. But journalism ultimately pulled me back in. Uh, and now eventually I, I was working as a, I was offering my services as the chairman of the advisory board at CoinDesk for some time. And eventually the CEO, Kevin Worth, said, no, we need you to come inside. So uh, 
drag me back in. And here I am back in media and, and it's fun. It's fun. It's a, it's, it's exhausting because it's a incredibly fast moving field that we cover, but um, yeah, having a lot of fun. Yes. Michael just flew in today and hopped right here to do this podcast. And we're very, very appreciative of that. So going back 2000 and, and, um, and 13, 2014, was that what you said? Core, 2013, I think I first, I first sort of stumbled across it. Yeah. Which is, you know, Fairly well, early by some standards, but you know, not which is three or four years after when it really initiated, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Though, well, yeah, two, yeah, exactly. Two thousand nine was was when it really was launched. Two thousand eight was when the white paper was out. Yeah, so it was already going for five or six years at that. So, point, yeah. in some, for some folks like uh, uh, us, nine years may seem like a long time, but it looks like in the last two years, especially during the last two years, it almost feels like Moore's law. In this aspect, it seems the innovation in blockchain and crypto assets, digital assets, seem to have accelerated rapidly in the next, last two years. As a blockchain expert and uh, a crypto expert, what do you see happening in the next two to four years? Yeah, again, as I said, it's very difficult to predict because these things are, and that's the thing, you get very su- surprised by where it all goes. Um, you know, I, I think when I look at crypto, and, and now, of course, what when we do, we're not just looking at the payments world, which is where Bitcoin and you know, that, that initial take on what, uh, what a cryptocurrency would be, but we're looking at smart contract environment, which seems to have given a lot of value to NFTs, Web3, this, this world. And that's really where a lot of the innovation has been going. Um, we, we tend to look at it and think, okay, what needs to be fixed? because everything is is still very early and and that seems like a cop out like why 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 isn't it taking over the world yet well because this is this is an extremely difficult transformation that needs to to be undertaken because it's a very different structure for how we run the economy so um, I, if I'm asked what is going to happen, um, you know, I, I hope that it, that there are solutions to many of the missing pieces, right? I, I think that um, we still have to properly figure out how we scale cryptocurrencies and blockchains in a way that um, keeps costs down. Right? Ethereum is um, is still, you know, the main center for, for you know, smart contract based and um, NFT transactions, which means that it's getting log jammed and, and it's expensive to move things around. Um, there are a lot of competitors to Ethereum that are emerging constructively, but how do we interoperate with all, all those things? And so we have the problem of siloed chains. So I think that I'm hopeful that that the next few years we'll see huge advances in terms of interoperability and scalability so that you can really just do massively larger transactions um, and do so in a way that means that assets, be they, be it money, you know, securities or, you know, um, uh, art can, can move around in, in a kind of a very sort of more fluid decentralized way. Um, I do think that what's been really interesting about the NFT revolution is that it brings into the mainstream, not just this sort of popular culture, uh, you know, almost force multiplier effect because all of a sudden, you know, NBA fans have got somewhere to connect with this in a way that was difficult for them to connect with crypto before. Um, But also because you're seeing, you know, just big name after big name in the, in the mainstream, you know, 
uh, media and entertainment world getting into this and, and experimenting with it. All of that will just inevitably drive change. But what we're going to need to see happen in the NFT world um, is some solution to this sort of licensing and rights problem. I mean, at this stage, people are still looking at um, uh, this problem of the right-click JPEG and saying, why on earth, how is this valuable? I can just take your Beeple and I can make a right-click and save it myself. So what am I getting? And the answer is, well, you're not actually buying the art. You're buying this digital certificate of authenticity to it and you're the first person to buy it. That gives you that. But that's not necessarily really all that revolutionary until we are able to tie to the media itself, to the art itself, some mechanism by which that NFT then uh, translates it into something valuable, um, which is the company that's what Streambed has been working on through this thing called the right token is to create some rights mechanism that now allows us to really identify and legally enforce rights to the media as it's connected to NFT until we get there you're still going to have this this speculative bubbles everyone's just buying the 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 thing this kind of bragging right if you like and it's not yet ready for it to be transformative from a true media sense but there's a lot of people including the company I founded working on this I think that's going to get there um so those are the things that I I think we need to watch um and we just need this stuff to be sort of uh, more and more accessible to the average person. Sure. I actually did a bunch of reading on Streambed Media and the simplicity of the messaging is quite powerful. If you're, do, if you're a creator, want to do something and you need to understand the rights opportunities and the royalty issues of this, then you need a strong smart contract background infrastructure that helps you do this because that's not your job as a creator. So mm-hmm. Kudos to be able to able to create that environment where creators can go in and point and click and say, "This is who I am. This is what I own. And this is what belongs to me." So that's a great thing. Uh, congratulations on that. Well, thank you. I, I've been uh, to be to be you know have to sort of put this out there. I'm far less involved in the management of that than the last few years. It's really been Jenna Pilgrim, who was my co-founder, that's really driven it. I think the latest thing that they're doing in terms of this right token is the most exciting part of it. Um, but yeah, I'm still. Maintained a position as the chairman, um, you know, less involved. My, my role at Coindesk obviously requires me to step back a bit, but I'm excited for what they're doing. I think it's really, really important stuff. I do want to touch on two other things that have happened recently. One is happening now and one has just happened. With your background as a journalist, media, and an expert, both in blockchain and crypto, what does the new executive order by Biden really mean? Look, I think... If nothing else, it sets a constructive tone. And, and that was a pleasant surprise to a lot of people. I think, um, uh, you know, people were expecting um, when Gary Gensler came in as the head of the SEC, and I, uh, full disclosure, I, I, I work with Gary at MIT. We co-taught classes together. We taught, uh, we, we co-wrote a paper together. I I was expecting a, a sort of more positive, constructive you know, albeit you know, he's a classic uh, Democrat who you know cares about reliable regulation and the need to protect consumers and maintain um, a, a, a sort of a, a, a level playing field financial system. So he was always going to be uh, uh, pro regulation. But I suppose we were all a little bit surprised to see Gary come out with what seemed like some rather strong language in the way that he 
focused more on all the dangers and harm of crypto and really wasn't talking much about the opportunities. And it, it created a lot of animosity, to be honest. There was, there was a lot of folks who were feeling very disappointed that the almost most high profile member of the administration touching crypto turned out to be less of a friend and seemingly a bit more of an enemy. Now, I think Gary's extremely strategic and um, he, he sure has a, a bigger game plan going on here. Um, but I think there was some nervousness around this executive order thinking that it was going to come down with some sort of heavy decree about uh, what should be done in terms of, of even tighter controls over, you know, KYC and anti-money laundering and, and really, once again, emphasizing the negatives rather than the positives. But, um, you know, it's still just – actually, I think it's a good thing. It, it wasn't prescriptive, the EO. It was – um, but it was a, a you know a top down directive to different agencies to come up with a with a you know cohesive strategy around yes how do you maintain protections for consumers and 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 the financial system but how can the United States lead in this technology in a way that puts it at the forefront of financial innovation. Um, and so the message seemed quite balanced and it seemed quite constructive in that regard. And I think the overwhelming uh, response amongst the industry has been, wow, that's, that's all good, right? It's, it, it's not putting guardrails around it constrictively. It is signaling that there needs to be, you know, a, a cohesive, reliable regulatory framework, but it's also saying, you know, this is a big deal. This, this, this technology really is important. It is going to be a very significant shift in the way that um, our economy and our financial system is run. And there are other competing jurisdictions around the world that are potentially far ahead of the United States and it's time to catch up. So I, you know, I, I think um, all in all really quite positive. Which is, which is a f the first great step. I mean, acknowledging that there is a situation, acknowledging that you have to make a decision and acknowledging there is a groundswell by the community and the population at, at large that something needs to be said and done about this. And I, I like what you said. I mean, the, the U.S. needs to take a leadership role because there are other environments uh, that are leapfrogging what we do here in the U.S. And given that the standard still is the, is the greenback, it's something that we should pay attention to. Yeah. Well, I think that the, um, the current tragic situation in Ukraine is actually a really potentially important catalyst for all this. Um, we do know that there's something of an ill-defined alliance that exists or is evolving between uh, Russia and China. Um, we do know that China, of course, has uh, a central bank digital currency that is deliberately being created to interact with what it calls its blockchain services network. It's a global framework, or rather, a, a, well, they, I think they would like it to be global, but certainly a nationwide network um, for sort of smart contract and, uh, uh, you know, a, a blockchain-based approach to, to the economy. And that the CBDC that they're producing, the digital yuan, will be, you know, um, integrated into that as a form of programmable money. And that's if it works as much as we can poo-poo it as some sort of permission system that's not nearly as innovative as the Bitcoin Ethereum ecosystem, it could be extremely powerful for China's economy, which means it's a competitive challenge for the United States. And 
there is a real risk that even though China at the moment is focused on largely a retail play for that digital currency, that it will now with Russia looking for another way to move money around, given that it's just been cut off from the global financial system as part of the sanctions, that there is a solution that is resolved through this technology that allows for the transfer of value, not just between Russia and China, but other nations as well, that essentially bypasses the dollar. You you have smart contract-like escrow structures that can be put in place um, you know, pretty much um, sort of removing any need for there to be this intermediating currency in the middle. So it's not as if the Chinese yuan is going to somehow be a successor to the dollar as the, as the, you know, the greenback as the world's reserve currency, but that there is this technology that could allow for the, you know, almost obsolescence of the very idea of a reserve currency. So that puts a lot of pressure on the United States, right? What are you going to do then? I mean, we have probably no choice but to go forward with these sanctions because what Russia has done is just so horrifying and there has to be some mechanism to control them. But if in the process you end up pushing these other competing nations into a solution that undermines the current regime, what does the United States do? And I think that the way forward is to think about open, innovative systems that protect privacy because both of those you know, those, those three definitions, open, innovative, and, and um, privacy-preserving, are in direct competition with what China can actually achieve. Yeah. And it gives a huge opportunity to the United States, but it also means giving up um, on its own surveillance powers, which is, which is a difficult thing <laughs> to do. Yeah, anything that's been in place for centuries is difficult, but it has to be changed, and change is happening. Transformation is happening today yeah. uh, with, the, with the advent of technologies, and especially blockchain and the crypto assets and crypto digital assets. Things are changing, and I think it's, the question is, do we change with it or do we die? Because that does happen yeah. uh, if you fall back. But, um, you know, I, I wanted to, to thank you so much for your perspective on these things, and uh, here, uh, I just wanted to make a small comment about Link2, and, and everybody has a choice, uh, but Link2 today announced that we will be contributing towards the U- Ukraine crisis, so look out for that news uh, as you start to monitor what we do, and we're making contributions to, uh, to the Ukraine crisis every day. Mm. And I wanted to thank you, Michael, for being here today, sharing your time and expertise with us. And we are really excited about you having you in in, uh, in Lisbon for our next yeah. Global Investor Conference and delving more deeply into the blockchain infrastructure. As I see that fundamental change and that is happening using these technologies and then embedding that with the current maybe um, the Web 3.0 and the metaverse mm-hmm. and sovereign identity and, and digital currencies. I mean, there's so much evolution happening there. But uh, but thank you for your time. You're most welcome, With a couple of words, and uh, well, well, I'm just a, my pleasure to be here, and a pleasure. I'm thank you very much for for inviting me to to Lisbon for the for the conference. I'm excited about that. That's going to be great. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean the 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 evolution of a new open architecture for you know almost like the next phase of the internet, which is ultimately the driver of the global economy, is. You know, is being formed as we speak, and, and so very glad to hear you sort of thinking hard about what Web 3.0 means, what these concepts of identity and the sort of the different idea about living in the digital world that the metaverse offers up 
all of this is part, I think, of a of a kind of like a rethink, a reimagining of um, who we are. Speaking of which, my plug is going to be <laughs> my uh, my newsletter and my my own podcast, Money Reimagined. I would uh, always can't get can't get away without plugging that on the on the show as well. Well, let's so, yeah. read that Money Reimagined. reimagined. <laughs> I love it. Great one. We'll we'll hold you to Money Reimagined. And remember, linked to as a deep ride, deprivatization of securities, deprivatization or democratization of access to pre-IPO tech technology mm-hmm. stocks, creating liquidity in the secondary market. Yeah. That's deep ride, right? Uh, Michael, reimagining uh, money, reimagined is what we're doing. But it's and, all about you know, so similar concepts, right? Democratizing um, and and uh, spreading access as widely as we can. I think that's that's the principle here. On that, we stop. Thank you all. Looking forward to seeing you later. Bye. Thanks, Karine. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Grit Daily Startup. If you haven't done so already, make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you consume podcasts. This way you'll get updates as new episodes become available. This podcast is brought to you by GritDaily.com, the premier startup news hub. More information at GritDaily.com. Once again, I'm your host, Sebastian Rusk. Until next time, friends. We love the employee retention tax credit and what it does for clients. Find out if you qualify at iHeartTaxRefunds.com. As the first and only CPA firm in the country solely offering ERC services, JWC has helped thousands of businesses claim over $500 million in tax refunds. We're a licensed and regulated CPA firm committed to client education without the gimmicks and deception of unlicensed ERC companies. Learn how to qualify at iHeartTaxRefunds.com.